Let's open our Bibles together, please, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. When James originally penned this, the Lord, of course, is the author of Scripture, you know that, but James is the one that God used to write this letter down. When James originally penned this, I don't know if uh, what was on his mind was uh, that transition from the last statement of chapter 1 into chapter 2, but it sure seems like it fits. If you remember last week, we talked about what he described as pure religion. And there were three aspects to pure religion. Bridle your tongue, fill your life with good works, like visiting the widows and the orphans in their distress, and keep yourself unspotted from the world. That is the last, the very last aspect of what James referred to as pure religion was this call to not be like the world, or more accurately, to not have your heart and your life affected by, directed by, and then look like a mirror image of the lost and sinful world around us. If you recall, I took you to Leviticus chapter 18, and we saw in Leviticus chapter 18 uh, the beginning of it, the call to Moses uh, and the children of Israel was, you're going to enter the land of Canaan now, and it's very important to me and very important for you, and what I want from you is that you you no longer walk in the ways of the Egyptians that I took you out of, and you no longer walk in the ways of the... uh, you no longer walk in the ways of the Canaanites where I'm taking you. You're going to walk in my ways. So it was really a call to keep themselves unspotted from the world, as James would later put it, right? So now here's James saying, keep yourself unspotted from the world. And you launch then into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, he talks about what I would think would be a way that you can keep yourself unspotted from the world. We live in a world that can, frankly, just be very mean and can be very cruel and can be just very neglectful and careless in the way people are treated. And that, of course, should not be paralleled or mirrored in the church. The way that we live ought to reflect our new way of thinking, our new way of believing, our new relationship with God. And one of the ways that that can happen is with how we treat each other. And this passage of Scripture in the beginning of James chapter 2 is all about how we treat each other. That's why I titled the sermon, Equal in Christ. It's a passage that if you have a study Bible or 
some sort of uh, Bible that puts headings over different sections or different paragraphs. The one in my Bible says, beware of personal favoritism. Right? Maybe yours says something like that too. But, but that's the idea. Is like, we have to be careful how we treat each other because when we show that sort of personal favoritism, it, it has an effect on parties that we would expect it would, and it has an effect on parties maybe that we're not even thinking about. And so we have to guard against it. Because true religion is, in part, keeping yourself unspotted from the world. We don't want any specks or spots or stains or dirt or filth or residue from this lost, fallen world sticking to us. And this is one of those things that the world is very good at. The world is very good at factioning itself off into groups, cliques, clubs, whatever, oftentimes at the expense of neglecting others. That's common in the world. We're not to bring that into God's family. Because as the old saying goes, and there's different versions of this, but it's a bit of a cliche. Well, it is a cliche, but it's a true one, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Right? It's a good cliche, right? It actually got some amens. Because you know that it's true. We all come to Christ the same. And before I pray and read the passage, you'll see as you read it, it talks a lot about the rich and the poor. But I want to write in the beginning of this show you that he's using the rich and the poor as an example. You can show favoritism for all sorts of reasons. And what the, what the passage is really about is not holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. And then one way that you can slip into doing that is showing preference to a rich person over a poor person. But that's just the example that's given. There's many other ways that can be done. And we need to guard against that. Because the church ought to be a place, ought to be a fellowship, ought to be a group, ought to be an assembly, ought to be an association of people where people who have been lost, beaten down by their own sinfulness, perhaps on top of that, beaten down by this world, and have found exclusion and pain, the church ought to be the place where they can find freedom from all of that. The church ought to be a place where someone who has faith in our Lord Jesus Christ can find love, acceptance, participation, inclusion, grace, grace, grace. We're saved by grace in a practical way. We ought to find it in the fellowship of the church. And personal favoritism squelches that quenches that. Let us pray. And then let me read the first 13 verses of this to you. Dear Father in heaven, 
We thank you, Lord God, for the time we have together here this morning. Thank you already, Lord, for the joy that it is to sing praises to you, to praise you with trumpets and voices and cymbals and stringed instruments and modern instruments and sing songs, modern songs, old songs, to bring out of what you've put in our hearts the fruit of our lips, praises to you. Thank you that we can give. Thank you that we can pray. Thank you that we can teach and preach now. Lord, help your people to live as they ought to live. Help us to love and encourage one another that we might be bold and joyous and triumphant in our reaching out to the lost with the gospel and living for your glory as we await your return, your glorious appearing. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to to understand these words and to be doers of them as this very letter says. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, You stand there. Or, Sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But... You have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Wow. So, I made some notes, of course, and... I 
thought of four ways that partiality like this is a corruptive influence. A corruptive influence in the church, in Christianity. And most of, I did actually a Bible study of James years ago on Thursday nights and, and uh, not to make things easy for myself on Sunday mornings many years later, but of course I review all those things to see if my views, as you become more knowledgeable, you learn different things. And Reading through what I wrote years ago, I, just, I was actually edified by my own writing, if, that, if, that's, if that's possible. And, and uh, I don't change a thing about what I thought then is still what I think now. So I share some of that with you today as well. But there are four ways that I think showing partiality, showing favoritism, corrupts. But just to reemphasize the first point that I already alluded to, is note the first sentence of this. Because if you just read this and don't carefully think through how it's structured, what you come away with is, this is a passage about the rich and the poor. It's not. It's a passage that uses the rich and the poor to teach something deeper, something more important. There are other passages that deal with the rich and the poor, right? Uh, when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he spoke directly to the rich in the church. And he said, you know, don't be corrupted by your riches and use your riches to do good and, and be rich in good works and rich in love and rich in mercy, right? So it's not a passage of Scripture that's intended to exalt the poor arbitrarily and put down the rich arbitrarily. There are examples in the Bible of wonderful godly people who presumably were rich. Joseph of Arimathea with his tomb that he gave to Jesus. Um, uh, Philemon with his house that he let the Colossian church meet in. Matthew, uh, 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 maybe the one of the apostles that was somewhat well-to-do, able to hold a dinner in his house and invite all kinds of people to come over to it. And there, there are examples of that. So it's not an arbitrary message about the rich and the poor. It's a message about what verse 1 says. Notice verse 1, the sentence doesn't mention the rich and poor at all. It just says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Right? And then the example is given of the rich and the poor to show a common way that people show partiality. But there are lots of ways that people show partiality. Right? We just surround ourselves with people that we like. We surround ourselves with people who make us feel esteemed. We surround ourselves with people who we can control. We surround ourselves with people who fit into whatever paradigm of righteousness I may have personally within myself, whether it is of God or not, at the expense of excluding and putting other people down. It's very human to do that. And that's why I connect this to the previous statement at the end of chapter 1. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. This is a way where you can be different than the world. You belong to a fellowship where it is expected, it is normal that there's going to be rich and poor. There's going to be men and women. There's going to be people who 
maybe had a very decent life before they became Christians. There are going to be people who were beaten down with sin upon sin upon sin upon sin before they were Christians. There are going to be people whose lives are perfectly in order. There's going to be people whose lives are a wreck. But when you come to Christ, you're made one. And the people with maybe the better means not just financial, I mean, but but just in their spirit, in their heart, in their background, in the order of their lives, their habits, their training, whatever it may be, that can all be sanctified and used by God to be a blessing to encourage other people who maybe come in from a harder place. But the point is to make everyone who has faith in Christ feel, sense, experience, encouragement and love. And when we show partiality, what do we do? We help ourselves. When we show partiality, we position ourselves as something that we're not in the church. None of us are, not me or anybody else. When we show partiality, right? And what we do is we exclude people that God has chosen. What does that do? It makes you an opponent of God. It puts you in competition with God. Who wants to compete with God today? Maybe that's that's what I should have called the message. Competing with God. Nobody would say, I want to compete with God. But when you show partiality, that's what you're doing. You're competing with God. Because God, every person who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, listen, Every person has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has it because God chose them and God predestined them. God drew them to Himself. God reached them with the Gospel. God opened their hearts. God blessed them with repentance and faith that they might be reconciled to Him and adopted as the heir of His kingdom. And so when we show partiality among ourselves for any reason, we're competing with God. Right? Our riches, our earthly conditions. Are we not looking forward, brothers and sisters, ahead to a day where the matters of this world are of no import to us whatsoever? Are we not looking forward to a day when we're free from the battles and struggles and pains of life in this world? Well, if that's true, and it is, then what we ought to do is live now like what the spiritual reality is, which is that we are one. It is why we are told in Ephesians to endeavor to keep the the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's kind of the antithesis of what James is talking about. James is talking about showing partiality. Paul talked about endeavoring, working, striving, applying your effort to keeping what is the spiritual reality, which is your unity. Spiritual unity is a reality because of what God did. The outworking of it is what you're called to. Work to keep it. You get it? 
God saved us, God chose us, God predestined us, God brought us to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ by the preaching of the gospel, entirely by His grace, no goodness or wisdom of our own, God brought us to Himself and made us one, made us united in Christ and put us together as a body. And now our job is to work to keep that. Can you see how favoritism competes with that because favoritism creates a pecking order. Favoritism makes people feel ranked. Where do I fit in on the continuum of who's in and who's not? Ought not to have that. Now, let me add a bit of a disclaimer You have an obligation as a Christian to put yourself forward as a participant in things. On the one hand, there should be no partiality in Christianity. But on the other hand, it's not just to complain about partiality if you're never around. I never feel like I'm included in anything. You can't complain about that if you're never here. Is that, is that reasonable? Right? Shake your head, yes. It's, it's most reasonable, trust me. Right? So, implied, a given in this discussion is we're talking about people who equally desire to be part of a thriving, living body of Christians. You understand? Right. You can't hide yourself in the shadows. You can't sit entirely on the sidelines. You can't be someone who is not even thought of because it's just an expectation that you're never going to show up for anything or be part of anything and then complain about partiality. You can't do that, right? It has to be fair from both sides. God is, God is immeasurably and consummately a fair being, is he not? What person can say to God, that's not fair? Right? You know what's, I'll tell you what's not fair. What's not fair is that I'm saved. That's what's not fair. Right? What's not fair is that I'm standing here as someone who believes that he's going to heaven. What's fair is that I die in my sins and I go to hell. So I can never complain to God about not being fair. Because what God did was sent his son and sacrificed him so he could redeem me. Right? But what's reasonable and fair is that if you're going to assist and contribute to and aid the church, the body of believers that you're part of, as being a place that is a haven for goodness and belonging and grace and, uh, and, and not a place where people are discouraged because partiality and favoritism keeps them put down for whatever reason, what you need to do, what your part is, is to participate. Be there. Contribute. Contribute by your presence. I've preached this for 17 years from this pulpit, wherever opportunity I get. But I have said and said and said and said again, sometimes just showing up is the biggest encouragement that you can give to someone else. 
Someone walks into a prayer meeting, walks into a Bible study, walks into a fellowship, and sees a whole bunch of their brethren there. Just that experience alone is uplifting. Am I right? Someone walks into a prayer meeting week after week, a Bible study week after week, and nobody's there. And then they sit and they listen to God's Word looking for edification when they're discouraged before the first word is spoken. You can't complain about partiality if you're not in the game to begin with. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's my job, brothers and sisters. That's what I get paid the big bucks for, is to stand up here in front of you guys and remind you of these things. Paul said that to Titus. Constantly remind them of these things. Constantly affirm these things that they would be filled with good works. That we would maintain good works. That's Titus chapter 3. Right? All right. My brethren, do not hold... Now, I want to point something out here. Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a comma, and then there's four words. The Lord of glory with partiality. And two of those words are in italics, the Lord. But really what it simply says is, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory with partiality. There's a reason why he inserts that phrase. And I can only think of one. And that is to remind us that in the church, all Glory belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. When our Lord taught us to pray, this is how the prayer ended. The kingdom and the power and the glory are yours. Right? Right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For the kingdom's yours. The power's all yours. And the glory is all yours. Partiality takes glory from God and gives it to the person who's being partial. That's the nature. Listen, why does partiality exist? Because it makes the practitioners of it feel good, feel affirmed. We all, and that's a basic human need that within the church we have to recognize the danger of. We can tend to faction ourselves off because such and such makes me comfortable and makes me feel good. But that's a form. See, it's the way the enemy works is so subtle. That's a form of taking glory away from God. God, Jesus, is glorified when we're all one. Jesus is glorified when there's no partiality because nobody is being exalted or lifted up except Him. That's all. And, and really, in Christ and in the church, isn't that all that matters? We say it, we sing songs about it all the time. Right? And I said, glory to God. Hallelujah. We clap our hands. But then, but then by our behavior, in very small and subtle ways, if we're not careful, and we don't take the counsel of God's word in its fullness, what we find 
is that in small, subtle ways, we're robbing him of that glory. Right? And that's why I think James starts this off. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Don't hold the Lord, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality because all glory belongs to Him. And partiality helps us glorify ourselves. We don't exist to try to position ourselves as this or that. We, look, we exist. Listen, everyone look at me. Look at me, look at me. If you, don't, if you, if you want to tune me out after this, okay, fine. But, but like, well, don't do that. But, but, but if you hear anything, hear this. Hear this. What we do with our lives, in our church, in how we live, in everything, is we're holding up Christ. We want to hold up Christ, hold them out there for the world to see as glorious. I don't want them to see me. I don't want people to credit and praise me. I don't want people, just people around me that make me feel propped up and esteemed. We should all be equally giving that love and support to one another, regardless of who we are and regardless of what our lives are like. But what we should all be mutually sharing and doing together is holding up Christ. Right? You follow me? Don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now, so the number one way on this list that we see, which I'll show you here in a minute, the, that the number one way that partiality corrupts Christian fellowship is it corrupts our discernment. Look at this. Pressing on into verse 2, into the example given of the rich and the poor. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, Ah, please be seated. Right? And say to the poor man, Over there will be fine. Sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves? And, right, we've discussed the partiality part, but look at what's at the heart of it. And what? Become judges with evil thoughts. We're told in 2 Corinthians that uh, we're supposed to take every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Right? So when we show favoritism to a rich person over a poor person, we have allowed our thinking to go on completely unbridled and unchecked. And we're thinking like the old, unregenerated people that we used to be when we do that. And so in that way, favoritism, in this case towards the rich, favoritism towards the rich causes us to have faulty discernment because our thoughts are, are evil, right? Um, there's, there's an aspect to this that is particularly insidious. I shared some thoughts with the men yesterday, and I won't take you through the whole thing today, but there's a couple of passages of Scripture 
I won't even ask you to turn to them. I'll just, just for time's sake, I'll just synopsize them for you. Um, in Mark chapter 2 and in verse 13, uh, you have Matthew, Levi, being called from his tax collecting table. And he has told, oh, you know what? Turn there. It's Bible study. It's a Bible church. Go, go to Matthew chapter 2 and 13. What am I doing trying to quote it for you? Let's read it. Mark, not Matthew, Mark. Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. Turn there, turn there, turn there. You don't want to just listen to me. Let's read it off of the page. In Mark chapter 2 and verse 13, it says that he went out again by the sea and all the multitude came to him and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Now, it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, look at this, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. That's good, right? Good thing. Yes? Good thing? Shake your head yes if you think that's a good thing. Good, you're with me. There are people who thought that was a bad thing. When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus gives just the, the, the quintessential Jesus answer, right? Those who are well have no need of a physician. Oh, and by the way, a little detail. They weren't complaining to Jesus. They were complaining to his disciples. And it says Jesus heard it. So when Jesus heard the complaint being made to his disciples, he spoke up and put an end to it. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Boom. Right? <laughs> and end of complaining. End of partiality. Right? See what, see what the partiality and the... Look at who he's sitting with. They're tax collectors. They take taxes from our Jewish brethren and give it to the Romans. And other sinners are sitting there at the table. If this Jesus were anything, he would not sit with these people. And what's implied? He would sit with us. Right? The religious leaders. Partiality. How dare he associate with them? We do that. Do you know what she's done? Do you know where he's been? You see his Facebook page from back from back before he knew Christ. You see, you see, you see what kind of stuff he used to do. See, do, do you do you see, right? And we do that. But Jesus is like no. I, you don't take people who are well to the doctor. You take people who are sick. The sick people are the one who... And I'm the doctor. That's, that's, that's the inference, right? I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course he's going to sit with tax collectors and sinners. That's who he came for. That's, that's what his church is made out of. Tax collectors and sinners. For 2,000 years, 
His church is made out of sinners who know they're sinners because they've been called to repentance. They weren't just called to come to a party. They weren't just called to pray a prayer. They weren't just called to walk down an aisle. They were called to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he came for. And those people are all one. They are his family. How dare these religious leaders say, does he have any idea who he's sitting with? He had perfect idea who he's sitting with. He sat with them on purpose. Right? Now, go over to John chapter 12 and verse 1. All of what I'm doing here builds to what I think is a very powerful point. Maybe you won't think it's very powerful, but I hope you do. Um, in John 1, John 12, verse 1, we're told that this is right after Jesus had performed the great and very public-ish miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Six days before the Passover, he comes to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, uh, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him, and the Mary comes with the, breaks open the, 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 the box of the ointment and anoints the feet with the hair, and it, the whole room is filled with oil, the, the scent of the oil, and Judas Iscariot gets all indignant that could have been sold and given to the poor. Of course, he had no care for the poor at all. Jesus knew that. That's why Jesus somewhat sarcastically says, you have the poor with you always. But she's done this for the day of my burial. You don't have me with you always. Now, verse 9. See verse 9? I love this. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Well, I love this family. I love this Lazarus, Martha, Mary family, don't you? Not only was their brother raised from the dead, but what did they do when their brother was raised from the dead? They turned it into an evangelistic opportunity. And why wouldn't you? Lazarus rising from the dead has been an evangelistic opportunity for us and for the whole church for 2,000 years. That's why it's in the Bible, right? But they had they, the immediacy of it. They had Lazarus sitting right at the table. And we're actually told people came not just to see Jesus, who over the last three years had become quite well known, but they came because they wanted to see Lazarus. We were told in the Lazarus story that many of them had come out to mourn with Martha and Mary when Lazarus had died. And many of them were aware. Many of them had even seen with their own eyes, heard Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth and watched him come out of the tomb. But some of them maybe hadn't seen that yet. So there's this, there's this Jesus-Lazarus banquet going on in their house. And a bunch of the Jews went out from Jerusalem and sat down. And what does it say? What does it say? It says, um, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus also to death because on account of him, what? Many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Wow. Well, these poor guys, they, they got some problems. The tax collectors are listening to him. The sinners are listening to him. The Jews are going out from Jerusalem to listen to him. Right? Now, turn over to Acts chapter 13 and see this. Acts chapter 13. 
and verse 14. Acts chapter 13 and verse 14. Paul and Barnabas are pounding the pavement, preaching the gospel wherever they go. They left the place called Perga and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. That's not the Antioch that's famous for being where they called them Christians first. It's a different Antioch in northern central Turkey. And uh, there was a synagogue there. So they go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sit down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Good, good witnessing opportunity there, right? Would you be ready if that came to you? Hey, we're talking about God here. We're reading from the Bible here. you have anything you want to say? Well, they were ready, man. They were locked and loaded. And they got up. And in verse 16, I won't read the whole sermon at all, but from verse 16, they begin to preach starts, men of Israel and you who fear God, meaning that men of Israel, those were the Jews. You who fear God, those were the Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel who were among them. So you have this great mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles. That's all a big part of this. And then he goes in, as he often did, went through a lot of the history of Israel, went through a lot of things to show that Jesus is the Messiah, quoted uh, from the Psalms, quoted from Isaiah, and eventually um, arrives at the great point in verse 38 Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, that's Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Boom. Nice, right? What a great way to arrive. Now, look at verse 42. When the Jews went out of the synagogue, when the service was over, the Gentiles, those are the ones back in the beginning, said, those you who fear God, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them on the next Sabbath. Come back next week, please. Paul, Barnabas, please come back next week and preach again, right? And they did. Now look at verse 44. On the next Sabbath, what happened? The whole city, almost the whole city. What did they do? What did they do? These guys, when Jesus, or when, when Paul and Barnabas said, sure, we'll come back next Sabbath, they took the week to go out and invite everybody in the town. And most of them came to hear. Well, the religious leaders in the synagogue were very jealous, and they didn't like that. See, here's what happens with regards to what the epistle of James says. In these three instances, and I shared this with the men yesterday, so a little reaffirmation for you guys that were here. But in all three instances, you have examples of people getting saved and are so excited about the fact that they're saved that they go out and they just start dragging people in. Tax collectors, sinners, the Jews from Jerusalem, the Gentiles all throughout the region. Come, 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 come. Listen to this. Come and listen to this. But what do you have? You have all different people. All different people. All being called to hear the same thing. The same message for those tax collectors and sinners was the message for those Jerusalem Jews. The same message for the Jerusalem Jews was for the Galatian Gentiles if Antioch and Pisidia is indeed in the region of Galatia, which I believe it is. 
Right? Same message. Come. Now, if you're part of a fellowship where partiality is shown, and we circle the wagons around those only who we like, those only who are rich, those only who are externally, in our view, esteemed, can you see how we miss what God is doing? God isn't just giving us a place to hang out with our friends. God has called us to be like these people. Freely you have received, freely give. Go out into the highways and the byways and get them all. But if your mindset is one of partiality, and you're not willing to humble yourself and think of what it really is about, the gospel, the gospel, being given out to people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, rich, poor, old, young, orderly, chaotic. From the perfectly healthy to the guy who's strung out on drugs. From the guy who sounds like an English aristocrat to the guy where every other word out of his mouth is F this and F that. The gospel must be taken to them. And God reaches those people. Some of you were those people. And that's why we don't show partiality because of what God is doing. Grab those Jews from Jerusalem. Grab those Gentiles from Antioch. Grab those tax collectors in Galilee and sit them down and share with them the words of life. Yeah? You see that? James chapter 2. Going back there, if you're following me. Which I hope you are. Um, James chapter 2. If you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, I sit here. You say to the poor guy, stand there, sit at my footstool. You've become evil in your thoughts. If you're evil in your thoughts, what do you think your deeds are going to be? Right? Showing partiality to the rich... Ready? Devalues the faith of the poor. Showing partiality to the rich shows, betrays, reveals that you care more about the economic status of person A than you do about the faith of person B. And I'm telling you, that's not how God looks at it. He's chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Remember when John the Baptist was thrown in prison? We read it in Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist is thrown in prison. He gets a little uneasy, so he sends messengers to Jesus. Are you the one, or are we to be looking for someone else? And Jesus sends those messengers back and tells them what? He says, he says tell them the blind receive their sight. Demons are cast out, etc., etc. And what? The poor have the gospel preached to them. That's what he came to do, not to show favoritism or partiality. 
God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the strong. He's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Not many noble are called. Not many high and mighty are called. Right? This is the testimony. And so we don't do well to show favoritism or partiality simply to people we're comfortable with. Better show favoritism and partiality to God who knows what he's doing. And love one another without prejudice. Love one another without favoritism. Love one another in a way that the world will look and say, they're strange. They receive them. They receive them. Boy, it's a mix of them and them and them. And the world loves uh, factioning itself off as them and them and them and them and them, right? Politically, racially, economically. There's them, there's them. And they're mad at them and they're mad at them. And everyone's mad at everyone. And then when you come into the church, it's supposed to be like, these people are weird. This is, this is totally different. These people just love one another. It doesn't matter what they look like, where they come from. There's no, there's, there's no person. Because they're all the same. Because we're all equal in Christ. When you show partiality to the rich, when you show partiality to anyone, you're reducing the value and the importance of the faith of the person you're denying by your partiality. Partiality, by definition, is an inclusion of some and an exclusion of others. What is your basis for that in the church? Is the church yours? Are the people in the church yours? We need to be very careful with one another because when we do these things, even if it's with good intentions, even if it's just naturally human, listen, brothers, okay, I asked you to look at me once and said, and said look at me again. All right? Here's the second thing you have to remember if you leave. Look at me. The things that you do have an effect on each other. The hand can't say to the foot, we don't need you anymore, get out of here, right? Whereas partiality, as natural and even unthinking as it may come to us, might make us feel comfortable and secure, it may be, without you even knowing it, and certainly with you not intending it, I'm sure, but it may discourage the faith of other people. God hasn't called us to that. Every Bible-believing church, whether it's a little group like this, there are groups smaller than this, or it's a group of thousands of people or hundreds of people, it's a true fellowship of Christians. It ought to be a place where a person, when they come there, it's because they sense that love and that reception from fellow sinners who have been redeemed by God's grace. Listen, my beloved brethren. Now, look at verse 5. So, oh, by the way, just to follow my list. I don't know if you care about my lists or not. But the first thing that we saw was that discernment is corrupted. You're going to see here now that vision is corrupted. We don't see what God is doing. Look. Listen, notice, what, what ver- when he says, listen, my beloved brethren, what, what, what word did he add to what he said before? See verse 1? 
my brethren. Listen what? So he adds the word beloved. Why? Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he does that? Like, like if you and I are talking to someone, brother, hey brother, brother, come here, brother, brother, and then all of a sudden I drop in a beloved brother who I love so much. You know that I'm trying to really emphasize something, right? Isn't that just, that's just a natural way of writing or speaking, right? So, so he's about to drop something here that's really heavy, okay? Listen. He tells him to listen, which is a funny thing to write because they're, they're reading, right? So, but anyway, listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Two points that should finish the discussion. Two points that should make every Christian examine themselves to make sure they're not showing some disrespect or partiality to other Christians by their actions. God has chosen the poor of this world for two things. One, to be rich in faith. It's why I just oh, I can't stand to tell evangelists that promise God wants you to be have all this money and just send me an offering and, and God will bless you with all this money and, and God will give you everything you want. And all that. What? God has chosen the poor of this world to be a witness because they're rich in faith. And even in their lack of possessions, they're still rich in faith and they have a joy that no amount of possessions can account for or explain. God's chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. And what's the second point? They're heirs. Hey, listen. You think the guy with the gold rings and the nice clothes is rich. The poor guy sitting there is going to inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah. Right? We, have, we, we, we get inheritances sometimes from our parents. Sometimes it's a lot. Sometimes it's a little. Sometimes it makes a big difference in our lives. Sometimes it's just a nice way to remember your parents or where, whatever the case may be, you know? But you know what? There are people, there are people who are alive in this world right now. Listen to this. They live in squalor and they don't have one cent to their name who for all eternity are going to be rich beyond anything you can quantify right now because they are going to inherit the kingdom of God with Christ. Christ himself is an inheritor of his Father's kingdom, and we are jointly heirs with him. So, when you show partiality among people, especially among the rich and the poor, but when you show partiality, what you're showing is, you really have no idea what God is doing. We faction ourselves off. You have no clue what God is really doing. What God is doing is taking a bunch of people who aren't worthy of anything and just because He wants to, just because He's good, just because He's gracious, just because He's merciful, just because it gives Him pleasure to do so, He is holding off in reserve His future eternal kingdom for them. They haven't done anything to deserve it. They haven't done anything to merit it. The only thing they've got is the thing that God wants the most from them, which is faith 
in his Son. They are rich in faith and they are the inheritors of the kingdom to come. Don't show partiality among yourselves. If you show partiality among yourselves, look at, look at, look at, you're creating a false visual and experiential prophetic perception of the coming kingdom. Because there's no partiality there. And we ought to live as subjects of that kingdom now. Because you are. That's why you're told now to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Because you're part of His kingdom now. There's a whole aspect and experience of His kingdom that we haven't arrived at yet that's coming and Christ is bringing it when He returns. But we're, part, we're subjects in the kingdom now. Live like that now. Don't factionalize yourself and show favoritism among yourselves because it creates a false reflection of what the kingdom of God that you're part of really is. Where the people who are rich in this world and the people who are poor in this world, it makes no difference. They're inheritors of the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. Verse 6. So partiality corrupts our discernment. Partiality corrupts our vision. We can't really see what God is doing. Third point, partiality corrupts our fellowship. We've already discussed this somewhat, but look what it says. You have dishonored the poor man. That's a point. Does it need any explanation? May I ask you, what Bible verse says that dishonoring poor people is a spiritual gift. May I ask you, what theological school of thought puts forth that dishonoring poor people is an acceptable thing to do? But see, because they show partiality, what they have done by saying to the rich guy, come sit down front in this prominent place, and said to the poor guy, go stand over there, what they've done is they've corrupted the fellowship. They've dishonored the poor man. Now you have in your fellowship someone whose spirit has been crushed. That is a real tragedy in Christianity. Churches ought to be places... Look, sometimes people need to have their spirits rebuked. People need to be rebuked in their thinking and their conduct that's different. That's done in love for the sake of trying to restore someone to walking right and thinking right and acting right. But what we ought not to do is have someone who comes in and they're dirty, they're filthy, they're not that intelligent, they haven't had a very good life, they've made lots of bad choices. And you can see the ramifications of their bad choices all over their lives. We don't make them stand over there because that dishonors them. May I ask, who in this room is worthy of honor? There's a place for honoring those to whom honor is due, but truly, in the deepest spiritual sense, is not Christ the only one who is worthy of honor? Well, we sing it in our song, all honor and glory and power and praise be unto you. For, well, we say all honor is His. But then when you honor a rich person over a poor person, or you honor someone over somebody else, you're creating something. Your dishonoring is crushing the spirit of somebody else. 
and causing harm. So we have to be careful about this. We have to examine our lives. You have dishonored the poor person. Now, James engages in a little generalizing here. Ready? Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? There are, of course, and James was aware of this, there are, of course, among the ranks of the Christians, mainly godly, rich people. Godly, rich people who know that they have their riches from God and they share, they bless others, they help others, they don't flaunt their wealth, and what they care about more than anything is their own faith and their great and wonderful and loving people. So those people are among the ranks of Christians, and I named a few that you see in the Bible already, right? So it's not an absolute thing that James is doing here, but he's generalizing. Generally speaking, not in the church, but in the world. Generally speaking, who are the ones that oppress you and drag you into the courts in James' day? Who are the ones that seem most emboldened to be blasphemous against the name of God and against the name of Jesus' Son? Is it not the rich? Is it not the famous? Is it not the celebrities? Is it not the self-important? Is, is it not the influential and the powerful? That was true 2,000 years ago, and generally, it's true today. Generally. It's a generalization. If that's true, why do you have a rich person walk into your fellowship and say, ah, sit here, and say to the poor person, stand over there? Why do you do that? In other words, it makes no sense. So what's the point? It corrupts our fellowship. It corrupts the fellowship. We already saw it corrupts our discernment. It corrupts our vision. It corrupts our fellowship when we don't think about it right. Show no partiality among yourselves. Be one in your thinking towards one. Listen, you know what you'll do? You will revolutionize this church. You will revolutionize evangelical Christianity and the small little part of it that you own if this is eliminated from your lives. Lastly, this last little thing, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you're disobeying it. You commit sin. That's what sin is. Sin is to disobey the law. He quotes from the law. You know where that law is written? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is one of the reasons why I connected it to what I said last week. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. That law is actually written in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is right after Leviticus 18, which I quoted for you last week and today. What was Leviticus 18, the beginning of it, about? Leviticus 18, don't live like the Egyptians that I, where I took you out of. Don't live like the Canaanites where I'm taking you. Live according to my laws. And then chapter 18 and chapter 19 are lists of laws, and some of them are really hard to believe. I mean, I mean, I mean hard to believe you even need a law for things like that. All kinds of sexual immorality and all sorts of really twisted, perverted things. But then at, in chapter 19, there's this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because that would be different than the Egyptians. 
and that would be different than the Canaanites. Just as it's different than the world today. That you love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. Don't love yourself as if you're some standard or some self-important being. Love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you show partiality, what are you doing? You're breaking that command. What is it to break one of the laws of God? Sin. The word sin literally means to miss the target. To miss the mark. To be off target. That's what the word sin means. The target is obedience to God's commands. When you show partiality, you are missing the target. When you love your neighbor as yourself, bingo, bullseye, you're hitting the target. Right? Showing partiality, loving your neighbor as yourself. What person in here would say, I don't want to love my neighbor as myself? You all want to love your neighbors as yourself. I know you do. You love God. You're here today. I preach I preach a little hard, I know that, but I know you're listening because you love God. I know that. I know you're, you're not listening to this because we're, we're all just these monstrous people and we want to get away with everything we can. No, I know you're listening to this because you love God. I know, that you want, I know that you're listening because you want to love your neighbor as yourself, as he says. And Jesus basically said the same thing, right? When he said, treat other people the way you want to be treated, right? So, so now, when you, over here, when you show partiality... What James says is, you're doing the opposite of what the command is. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves, but we're shooting ourselves in the foot when we show partiality. We're undermining our own efforts to show love when we show partiality. Partiality is in competition with love. Partiality is antithetical to love. And love is the supreme act of everything Christian. If I give all my goods to the poor, if I can speak all mysteries, if I give my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Right? So, you want to love? Start with this. Eliminate favoritism within the body of Christ. Good starting point. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So, what's he saying? Showing partiality is, makes you a lawbreaker like an adulterer or a murderer. I, he can't be any stronger than that. And what are you going to do? Uh, excuse me, James, we're not under the law anymore. Listen, this is God's word. We don't argue with it, right? He's saying it because it's relevant. You know, he's not, he's not saying this so we can find some clever theological argument against it. It's God's word. When you show partiality... You're guilty like an adulterer or a murderer. Right? It's heavy. 
Now look at this, verse 12. So speak and so do as those who are not going to be judged. Is that what it says? Look at verse 12, everybody. So speak and so do as those who are not going to be judged by anything or anyone. Is that what it says? Shake your head no. It isn't what it says. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. What does that mean? Well, the law of liberty is we have been set free from our sins We have been set free from the law of Moses through faith in Christ. We could never justify ourselves, but now through faith in Christ we have been justified. And now we are to walk and to live in that freedom, pursuing, doing those things that are good and pleasing in God's sight, but completely without fear that we're going to die and go to hell and be judged in our sins. But we're still judged. We're still accountable. So speak and so do as someone who will be judged by the law of liberty. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we've done, the deeds that we've done in the body. Right? We must. So in other words, when it comes to this business of showing partiality, speak and do as someone who understands that you are accountable for how you live, for what you speak and what you do. It's not the law of Moses, because we'd all be condemned to hell if it were that. But this law of liberty, we've been set free from sin. So now I can walk and serve God without any fear of if I stumble, I fall, I'm going to get, he's going to take my salvation away. I'm going to go, no, I'm set free from all of that. Christ has set me free. I'm not pursuing now circumcisions and Sabbaths and ceremonies and all these other things. I just want to do those things that are good and pleasing in a sight. Speak and do as someone who will be judged by the law of liberty. There is both accountability and freedom in that statement, isn't there? Think about that. And eliminate the partiality from your life. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. What does that mean? Well, that means that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. I don't know how to better define it than that. Do you expect mercy when God judges you? Do you need mercy when God judges you? Then instead of showing partiality, show mercy to people. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment comes at the end. Mercy can happen now. And by the way, remember the beginning of the passage. When you show partiality, you're making yourself a judge with evil thoughts. Leave the judging to God. Leave the judging to God. You show mercy and eliminate partiality. Jed and Amy, can you guys come back and close us with a song? Let's all stand up together and close the service out with a hymn.